great sound. This whole neighborhood is mine, it seems to say. We couldn't imagine what had happened to those plants. Well, I shoved my hand down into the soil underneath the plants, and there was a tunnel where the roots used to be. We love it's time for the apple seed, filled with stories for you and your family, all kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers. I'm Sam Payne, thrilled to bring you today stories from Doug Elliott, the wonderful storyteller and naturalist, Pete Griffin, also a fan of the natural world. You're gonna hear an entry in the Radio Family Journal about a cow that my family owned when I was a kid, and a conversation with Rod Gustafson about our beloved old movie. But to introduce us to the first story that we're gonna hear, here today. I'm pleased to be joined in the studio by Trent Horton, one of our assistant producers. Trent, it's great to have you with me. It's good to be here. How are you? I'm all right, and I'm super excited to hear. Well, this is just a little bit of Andy Offit Irwin lunacy, isn't Absolutely. it? Tell us about crickets in the kudzu. Well, I, I mean, you kind of already introduced a little bit of it. I <laughs> One of the reasons I chose the story is because it just made me laugh so hard. Um, it, it starts out as about a cricket who gets covered in mud and can no longer sing its song, um, which is devastating because, as you'll hear in this this story-slash-song, um, the only way for crickets to get their joys is to make their noise. <laughs> um, so this cricket goes on an adventure, figures out how to, how to clean itself off, and the whole time uh, Andy Offit Irwin is telling the story as if he's his preschool teacher, Miss Shirley, <laughs> and just the, the voice and the imitation he does is, is pretty funny the, the whole time. It is bonkers. It's just bonkers. And of course, kudzu, if you're not familiar with what kudzu is, kudzu is this, well, this weed, really. I mean, <laughs> this plant that grows in the South. For for a long time, people thought that it was like the plant that ate the South, right? I mean, it's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's a transplant uh, that it grows and grows and grows and grows, kind of a mile a minute plant, you know? The truth is a lot of stuff grows as fast as kudzu and is as invasive, but kudzu has this kind of... Japanese monster movie reputation. Yeah, I actually had to look it up after the story because I thought it was a place originally. You're right. But yeah. then I looked it up and no, it's just a, it's just a plant. So so, so this story is educational to boot, right? Yeah, no kidding. All that and educational. Here's Andy off at Irwin with crickets in the kudzu here on the Appleseed. Thank you. This is a song dedicated to my preschool teacher, Miss Shirley. Um, yeah, I mentioned her in the last story. If you saw the last one, you see um, Shirley, goodness and mercy. Um, <laughs> she, uh, she was the first. Uh, educators, I know, you're, I know the joint's crawling with educators. Yes, bless your hearts. Hardest job, I know. I, I do residency sometimes. I get there around 9. I leave around 1.30. I'm like, God, I've never been so tired in my life. And teachers will be looking at me like, where are you going? I'll get home, I'm so tired. Uh, so she was an educator. Uh, Miss Shirley was a very important educator. She's the first educator to ever say, crisscross applesauce on our bottoms, please. <laughs> what a good looking bunch of boys and girls we have here today. <laughs> yes, you are. <laughs> I could just eat you up with a spoon. Get away from me. Boys and girls, this song is called Crickets in the Kudzu. It's about crickets who live in kudzu. Oh, 
crickets in the kudzu making noise. That's the only way for crickets to get their joys. Crickets in the kudzu, can you dig it? That's the only way to live when you're a cricket. That was so smart. Yes, you are. <laughs> That's right, boys and girls. Crickets in the kudzu, hopping through the leaves, rubbing their little legs together. That's how they make that little noise. Except for one little cricket couldn't make that noise. You know why? Say, why? Ah. I took <laughs> There was a creek that went through the kudzu patch, and up the stream from the kudzu patch was Farmer Poultry Brown. He was a chicken farmer. <laughs> but he was not environmentally concerned, boys and girls. <laughs> he was dumping something in the creek. <laughs> something from the chicken farm into the creek. He was dumping chicken into the creek. <laughs> and you know how normally when the creek is clear and clean, it goes over the rocks like this? Babbly, babbly, babbly. Can we all do that yet? Babbly, babbly, babbly. Sir, did you babbly? You don't want to break it. Well, the, cr the creek did not do that anymore, boys and girls. Now it bubbled over the rocks like this. Like that yet. But this cricket did not know the creek was so polluted that day. And he loved to go swimming in the air. And he liked to die from a high pressy, pressy. This is a children's song. <laughs> I can't believe you said that. Cliff. And normally when he dove, it sounded like this. And usually when he hit the water, it sounded like this. But not this time. When he hit the water, it sounded like this. Oh, and it was so hard to swim because it was so ickety and yuckety and pollutedy and nasty and smelly and everybody say, ew. And he pulled himself out on a rock and he rubbed his legs together to call the other crickets to come and help him. But when he did, it went. <laughs> and he returned to the other crickets and they gave him a terrible nickname. We do not like it when people call us bad names, do we, boys and girls? Curse <laughs> our feelings. Yes, it doesn't, Miss Susan. Yes, it does. Don't my mama does. No, they called him. They called him. <laughs> and he was so humiliated in front of his peers being called that he ventured out of the magic forest to seek the counsel of the animal critters that lived therein. <laughs> he went into the forest to ask other animal friends for help. And the first critter he came up to was a bullfrog. And he looked at the bullfrog and he said, Bullfrog, can you help me be happy and have fun with the other crickets in the kudzu making noise? That's the only way for crickets to get their joys. Crickets in the kudzu, can you dig it? That's the only way to live when you're a crick. <laughs> you boys and girls are our future. <laughs> And the bullfrog looked and said, no. 
I can't help you have fun with the other crickets in the good zoo making noise. That's the only way for crickets to get their joys. Crickets in the good zoo, can you dig it? That's the only way to live when you're a So the cricket ventured further into the magic forest until he came to the oldest critter in the forest. Therefore, the wisest, he came up to the wise old Owl. turtle. <laughs> and he said to the wise old turtle, he said, wise old turtle, you're so old and wise, you have so many lines on your back, can you help me be happy and have fun with the other? Crickets in the gut zoo making noise, that's the only way for crickets to get their joys. Crickets in the gut zoo, can you dig it? That's the only way to live when you're a... That's what happens when you get bored, you start clapping along, yes? <laughs> sometimes the children will do that, sometimes, and you can't hear the words when they do that. And Miss Shirley said, boys and girls, when you clap your hands, the palms of your hands turn red. And that's blood that should be in your brains. <laughs> Well, the turtle poked his head out of his shell and looked all around. It looked something like this. This is my job. And he said, Go to the courthouse tent of the National Storytelling Festival in Jonesboro, Tennessee. And that's what the cricket did. He grabbed on to the bike rack of a 1998 Honda CRV. <laughs> and he made his way here to the tent. And he came hopping through the aisle right back there. Yes. Thank you for looking. We're using our imaginations. <laughs> And that's why we're here. <laughs> and he hopped up here on stage. He hopped right up here on the microphone stand. And he was so cute and green and pitiful and covered with chicken. <laughs> that all the young people said, ah. Uh, he is so cute. He's so cute. He is so precious. He is so precious. All right, that's enough. And the children had mercy on the cricket, and they all gathered into a great big circle. And they put their right hands into the middle of the circle till their hands made a giant column up to the top of the tent. And they carried that cricket aloft. On top of. That column of hands. Out the door, all the way to Johnson City to the Krispy Kreme. <laughs> and they ordered him some Krispy Kreme coffee. Because they knew there were magical properties in the coffee of the Krispy Kreme, and they dipped him in it thrice. Thrice means four times. <laughs> and the cricket was made clean, amen. And he rubs his legs together. You okay, man?
if you listen carefully, you can hear all the crickets join in. Crickets and the kids who making noise, that's the only way for crickets to get their joys. Crickets and the kids who can you dig it, that's the only way to live when you're... Everybody big finish! Thanks. <laughs> Andy Offit Irwin at his Andy Offit Irwiniest right yeah. there with crickets in the kudzu. Not only a, a rollicking good time with singing and storytelling, but also sound effects too. I know right? that man's an amazing whistler. Yeah. <laughs> those who, yeah, those who know Andy know that he has competed in the world whistling championship. I learned two new things. That's (laughs) yeah. Great fun. That story crickets in the kudzu. And of course, Andy Offit Irwin is the guy behind the wonderful Aunt Marguerite stories that you often hear here on the Appleseed. Andy's fictional Aunt Marguerite, an octogenarian who, after the passing away of her husband, goes back to medical school and starts a hospital with a bunch of her pals. And of course, the world of Aunt Marguerite is populated by all kinds of colorful characters, and Andy tells those stories. And, of course, tells stories like Crickets in the Kudzu as well. He's a great guitar player, a great songwriter, great sound effects guy, wonderful whistler, as you said, Trent. Mm -hmm. And a pleasure to share that story with you here on The Appleseed. Trent, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. And there's a lot more coming up on The Appleseed. Stick around. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's great to be with you today on The Appleseed. If you're just joining us, we just heard crickets in the kudzu, a little uh, Andy Offit Irwin silliness in front of an audience who was just eating it up. And there's a lot more coming up. You're going to hear from Doug Elliott in a little bit. But first, because the sharing of memories can sometimes be the spark that ignites a story for you that you can share with the people that you love. Here's a memory of mine about a cow that my family owned when I was a kid. It's today's entry in the Radio Family Journal. The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it. On the Appleseed. My parents, when they were young, moved from California to Utah to, well, to make a living as folk singers, right? And part of the dream was to live self-sufficiently and simply, growing a big garden full of tomatoes and carrots and corn and Swiss chard and peppers, making bread, heating our house with a wood-burning stove, growing fruit trees, and, of course, making a lot of music in the living room and in the yard. My parents and all their folky pals. They had folky pals, all of whom had similar dreams. Some of those pals were musicians, but some were painters, and some were sculptors, and some were potters, and some were writers. It was a sort of rural American boho life, filled with hootenannies and cookouts and, well, for a time, with animals, too, livestock. We had a goat for a long time. We had our share of dogs and cats, and there was more, too. Up the road, 
other folky pals were having the same kinds of adventures on their country lots, making big garden spaces and building tree houses and painting and sculpting and holding these folky parties that everyone would come to with their kids. Plenty of food and music and the air thick with the dreams of young artists. And in this American rural boho world, my folks and a couple of their folky pals all thought we might like to have some fresh milk. And so into our circle came a milk cow. Her name was Penelope Butterscotch Pudding. I'm not kidding about that. Penelope Butterscotch Pudding was co-purchased, co-owned. We had a share in her. The cow lived at another family's house because they had space for her. Their place was more farmy than our place, and every day there were a couple of gallons of milk for us. It came to us in big gallon glass jars, and the white milk in each jar was topped with a thick layer of cream. I was a little kid during the Penelope butterscotch pudding years, and the internet being what it is, I wondered just now if any of our circle of friends during that time might have written something about the cow, and also wondered if I could find it. Well, as it turns out, there is one document on the whole wide internet written about that cow. It's a blog post written by, of all people, my dad. And here's what he said about Penelope Butterscotch Pudding. The Southies and the Graveses and the Paines owned a cow together. Her name was Penelope Butterscotch Pudding. Elaine Southie, the only one among us who had any experience with this sort of thing, did all the work, and the rest of us shared the cost of feed and contributed the labor of going all the way up to the Southies and picking up our milk. Penelope Butterscotch Pudding bore us a calf one day, a little brown bull with orange stripes like a tiger. We named it Ground Chuck. It was set to graze freely in the hills above town, and when it didn't appear at roundup time, we just called on local cattlemen until we found him. Now, that's what my dad wrote about Penelope Butterscotch Pudding and I remember Penelope Butterscotch pudding really, really well. And I remember Chuck, too. We called him Chuck, though his name was Ground Chuck. I remember that once the local cattleman found him, he lived for a long time in our front yard. He was kind of like our pet dog. And we played with him like you'd play with a pet dog, if you can believe it. But until I read what my dad had written about Penelope and Chuck, I never remembered them as related to each other, mother and son. But yeah, of course, it makes total sense. We make up stories sometimes about the past. We fill stuff in when we can't remember it. We paint over memories with a wash of nostalgia or idealism. Those were the good old days, we say. In reality, those good old days were probably not much better, all things considered, than the ones we live in now. But for me, they are still a kind of rescue. Those days when we all owned those cows and made music in the living room and the front yard and were moved by each other's paintings and sculptures. Each day needs to be faced in the present. I get that. And it's no good living in the past or pining for it, but I sure do like to visit. I like to visit the lawn on which the folkies are playing. I like to visit the studios where those paintings and sculptures were being made. I like to visit the gardens for a fresh ear of corn or a mess of Swiss chard with butter and lemon chased with a glass of cold white milk poured from beneath a cap of thick cream. And here's the main thing I want to say. As fun as it is to visit that little world, it was just as fun for me to look around for a minute on the internet to find that apparently my dad likes to visit 
to. The Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it, on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining me for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. There's a lot coming up. You're going to hear stories from Doug Elliott and Pete Griffin, both terrific naturalists as well as storytellers. But first, how about a conversation with a friend? Great stories come into our lives in so many ways. Through the books that we read, through the meals that we share, the songs that we love, and of course through the tales that get passed down from teller to listener, sometimes over generations and generations. And one of the ways that great stories come into our lives is through the films that we see. And it's a pleasure to have in the studio with us Rod Gustafson, who has seen and enjoyed so many films I can't even count them. Probably seen more than you've enjoyed. Mm-hmm. When it comes yep. to- oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if anybody can enjoy every movie they've seen. Longtime film yeah. reviewer Rod Gustafson, and we're going to talk. We're going to talk about a favorite movie of mine. Oh, today. really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's good to hear. Well, <laughs> I, well, let's launch it off with this, and then I'll tell you how it connects with with uh, this fun thing I used to do in my childhood that no parent would let their kid do today. <laughs> so, uh, the Muppet Movie. Sure. I, I love so many of the Muppet Movies, yeah. but those early ones yeah. were just amazing. 1979, yeah. I want to say, the first Muppet Movie came out, and uh, and this is the one where I, I think this is the rich and famous contract. I'm that's a little right. rusty on this with Muppet Orson Movie. Wells but yes, with offering, Orson yeah, Welles. Right. And every time yes. working in this industry, Sam, I've often wondered, is this my finally my rich and famous contract <laughs> but one of the scenes in the Muppet movie is where they have this showdown and to put the story in a little capsule encapsulate it the bad guy wants to open up all these restaurants where he sells frog legs right. and of course this offends Kermit that's right he wants and, Kermit to be the mascot and he wants Kermit right. to right. be the mascot <laughs> which when you think about it is just wrong on so many levels but I guess you know yeah but anyway I have seen other companies do that uh, anyhow, so they have this showdown in this, and they need this old Western kind of movie set yeah. where Kermit and just a great, like, uh, you, back in the days, and I'm just going to go off the rails here for a moment and talk about the movie. These were in the days where everything had to be done in the camera, what we call practical effects. Yeah. No special effects. You had to film it to get it on the film. Yeah. And how Jim Henson, Frank Oz, and those Muppet people made these Muppets look like they're walking around on in, the dirt in with the humans boots. in cowboy boots. <laughs> yes, that shot between Kermit's legs where he's got the cowboy boots right. and he's getting ready for the big <laughs> showdown. ready for the showdown. And, yeah. So why, what this, whenever I watch a movie like that and I see one of these old Western sets, yeah. it reminds me of when my parents, I was born in Vancouver, British Columbia, and then my dad kind of lost his job. His company went on strike forever, basically. And so finally, a, a relative said, hey, why don't you move out to the Canadian prairies? And they're building all these pipelines. Alberta is the Texas of Canada. Mm. So back in the 1960s, they were building pipelines, doing all sorts of things. Lots of work out there. Yeah. So my dad takes this job, and we move to this place called Cavendish. You see people, see if you can find it in your map. I, I don't think it's even there anymore because it is literally gone. But it was a, uh, a little community that was actually operated by the company it was working for. Eight houses were there in Cavendish, and that was it. And literally, the nearest big city was, um, was about 100 miles away. So it was yeah. very remote. But... 
about two miles down the road from Cavendish was what we called Old Cavendish. And the Canadian prairies were settled as much of the United States, the western United States was. It was dependent on the railroad. Mm -hmm. And when the railway came to town, a little community would pop up. And then about another 10 miles down the road, another community would pop up. So Old Cavendish, as we used to call it as kids, it was built in about the 1910s, 1920s. Well, now it's the 1960s. Old Cavendish has been long gone because this is what's called dryland farming. And the rains never came. They promised lots of people, here's lots of land, you can grow food. Oh, well, guess yeah. why? Yeah. So Old Cavendish was basically gone. And so now we're living in this other little community. Need to set this up for you. In the summertime... What us kids, the kids that are living in this community, we discovered to get on your bike and you could ride out to Old Cavendish in just a matter of minutes. And it's a ghost town, Sam. How I wish I could get back there today with a camera and take pictures. It used to have a bank. It had a general store. It had a hotel. These buildings were still standing. And, of course, they're not standing very well. Sure. But yeah. they're still standing. And so we would go into these buildings and we pretend, you know, I'm running the general store, I'm running the hotel, I'm serving drinks in the, in the saloon and all this stuff. And, you know, a lot of the windows were busted and there'd be mice in there and whatnot, but this was like a playground, playground. to us. Yeah, and, uh, Oh, it really was. And so we would pretend with our cap guns and whatnot, we'd get out there and like have our little showdowns and, and whatnot and, you know, this town ain't big enough for the 16 of us and all that type of thing. But the one day I do remember is when myself and my good friend Jeannie, she was the girl next door, and, and she was a real tomboy. She, she'd be the one that would be telling me, Rod, we need to go climb up on the roof of the general store. We've never been out up there before. Well, I don't know if we should. Oh, come on. Well, let's do it. So we're climbing up this. We're up in the rafters, and we're going through <laughs> this broken glass window, and we get out on the roof, and this is great. And we sit out there for a little bit, look at the view, and then we go down to come back inside again. Well, Jeannie slices her head open oh, on geez. the glass in the window. So the so, sheer number of horrible things that happened to us. Absolutely. When we were kids, but right? you know, when you're a kid, you think, wow, you're really bleeding. So yeah. I did what any movie hero does. I take my shirt off, wrap it around her head. <laughs> <laughs> and we get on our bikes and we ride back home. Well, by the time we get home, that, that shirt's looking more red than yeah. white anymore. Oh, and, and Jeannie's mom was really laid back. My mom probably was more like, oh, my gosh, what's happened? Yeah. Jeannie's mom's like, oh, maybe I should drive 30 miles and take you to the nearest oh, hospital. Gosh. So, But those yeah. were kind of the fun things that we used to do. We had this old prairie ghost town just... Uh, it, it was like our playground. It, and it's always what amazing what stuff. will bring those memories back. You know, mm -hmm. you talk about sitting in the Muppet movie and watching as Kermit the Frog yes. there is engaged in that Old West showdown, and suddenly your head is filled with memories. Oh, yeah. Happens to me with every Western. I've been kind yeah. of working through some of the old Eastwood Westerns sure, and the yeah. John Wayne Westerns, and as soon as I see those old buildings, I think, oh, I miss Old Cavendish. I want to go back there and Cavendish. play. Now, of course, if I was living there today and I had my kids, I'd be saying, no, don't go near that place. You're going to kill yourself. But it was Ain't fun. it the way. Again, the things that we get involved in when we're mm -hmm. kids yeah. and, and those memories, they just keep giving, don't they? Don't well, they? be so safe out stuff. there for sure. Yes. And watch the Muppet movie, for heaven's sake. Oh, yes. That? Rod, thanks for joining me. Oh, you are welcome.
Great stories come into our lives in so many ways. Always a pleasure to chat with our friend Rod Gustafson. There's a lot more coming up on the Appleseed. You're going to hear from Doug Elliott and Pete Griffin, two storytelling naturalists. You won't want to miss the snake and the egg and the red-breasted sap sucker. That's coming up in a minute. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's great to have you with me today on The Appleseed. Up next, a story from Doug Elliott, the naturalist and storyteller. This is called The Snake and the Egg. It's a story about a snake looking for a meal and finding one, much to his chagrin. Here's Doug Elliott on The Appleseed. There's a big black snake, he's crawling across my yard. There's a big black snake, he's crawling across my yard. He may be moving slow, but Lord, he's working hard. Well, speaking of snakes, I'd like to tell you a true story. It happened right around my home place here in Rutherford County, North Carolina. We have a nice little country place with a big garden where we grow a lot of our own food. We have a few fruit trees, a fish pond, and we keep a few chickens too. And when they're laying, we can get fresh eggs almost every day. It's a pretty nice little scene. But of course, you wouldn't say things are completely under control all the time. Like one year, my wife, Yana, had set out this long row of strawberry plants, and we were getting excited because the first berries were just about to come on. There were big old green berries laying out there soaking up the sun. It looked like in another week we'd be eating plenty of strawberries. Boy, I could almost taste them. Well, let me tell you, the next time we went out there to check on those berries, almost all the plants were withered up and they were dead. The berries were still hanging on there. Nothing had even touched the berries. We couldn't imagine what had happened to those plants. Well, I shoved my hand down into the soil underneath the plants and there was a tunnel where the roots used to be. And that tunnel went from one plant to the next, down the whole row. Well, you know what it was? It was voles. Now, voles are like chubby underground mice. They live under the ground like moles, but they're rodents, and they have two pairs of cutting front teeth like mice and chipmunks and squirrels. Now, most of the rodents we have around here eat seeds and nuts, so they aren't usually a problem while the garden's growing. But voles' favorite food is the roots of plants. Sometime those little rascals will move into our potato patch and they'll start feasting on those young potatoes. Like one year, we had to dig our potatoes in July while they were still small just to get them out of the ground before the voles ate them all. But you know, one time I was sitting out on the porch and right out in front, there in the flower bed, we had this clump of poppies. Well, I was sitting there and I was admiring their bright orange flowers when I saw one of those poppies just waving back and forth. Well, I started to wave back to it, and I thought, now, hold it, what's happening here? There was, there was no breeze blowing. None of the other poppies were moving. There was just this one. I thought, now, what is this? Is this some new variety of floppy poppy, or what is this? Well, I couldn't figure what was happening. What is getting into this poppy? Well, I watched that poppy wave back and forth a few times, and the next thing you know, it got yanked right down into the ground. Those voles were under there pulling them in by the roots. <laughs> now, I mean, if that's not enough, there's a whole nother scene going on around the chicken coop. Now, we're always trying to keep our chickens well-fed. We feed them scratch feed, which is usually cracked corn and wheat and different kinds of grains. We want to make sure that chickens always have enough to eat. But the problem is that a lot of the time, they don't finish all their food during the day. And some of that food will be left over at night. 
And with all that corn and grain laying out there on the ground all night, the next thing you know, it starts to attract rats and mice. And we start seeing rat holes all around the chicken coop, and they start multiplying. I mean, it's like rats in the chicken coop, moles in the lawn, mice in the rafters, chewing till dawn. Got bats in the belfry, chipmunks in the wall, coons in the corn patch, and that ain't all. Got voles in the tater patch, squirrels in the attic, shrews in the compost. It's making me erratic. Well, I was complaining to one of my neighbors, and I said, I don't know what we're going to do. If it's not the voles, it's the mice. If it's not the mice, it's the rats. If it's not the rats, it's some other critter. I don't know, but those critters are about to eat us out of house and home. I mean, I don't know what I'm going to do. I was ranting and raving, and my neighbor said, Buddy, you know what you need to do? You need to set you up some snake boards. I said, snake boards? What are snake boards? He said, well, you just get you some boards. Like, well, what kind of boards? He says, just any old boards will do. The wider, the better. You can use plywood or even old roofing tin will work. You just lay them all around your garden, and you just prop each board up with some rocks so there's just a couple of inches off the ground. And he said, now I'll tell you what's the truth, buddy. There's nothing a snake likes better than the dry, dark space under a nice, warm board. And what you do is you set them boards up all around your garden, and then the snakes will move in, and once you have a bunch of snakes hanging around, they'll take care of all them critters. They'll eat your mice and your rats and your voles and everything. Oh, great, I said. What about attracting copperheads and rattlesnakes? Now, I don't need any of them in the yard. He said, there ain't that many copperheads and rattlers around. And this way, if there are any, you'll find out about it. And all the rest of the snakes we have around here, they aren't poisonous. And about every one of them that's big enough will eat mice and rats. Well, I thought about it a little bit, and I thought, by golly, I'm going to try that. So every time I'd go by a construction site and I'd see a scrap pile with some old boards or pieces of plywood in there, I'd grab them up, throw them in the back of the pickup truck, and take them home. And I started putting them around the garden. Well, before long, we had boards just laying all around the yard. Our place was starting to look a little bit trashy, you know, but sometimes country life gets like that. Every now and then, I'd go around and check those boards. And I'd lift the boards up carefully, one at a time. Well, one day, I lift up this big piece of paneling and I could not believe my eyes. There was not one, but there was two black rat snakes in there, and these were big ones too. And I thought, yeah, <laughs> hallelujah, my snake boards are working. All right, black rat snakes, all right. Now, black rat snakes, they're about the biggest kind of snake we have around here, and they aren't poisonous, and the reason they call them rat snakes is because they eat mice and rats. Well, I looked, and sure enough, one of those snakes had a big old lump in its belly. And I thought, man, the snake boards are working and the snakes are working too. All right. Well, that black snake's lump looked like maybe it had eaten that rat that had been hanging around the chicken coop. Well, you know how snakes don't chew their food? You know, they swallow it whole. Sometimes it'll take two or three weeks for a snake to digest just one large meal. So I figured it'd be fun to check in on that snake every now and then and see how long it would take for it to digest that rat. Well, every day or two, I'd go out and I'd lift those boards up and I'd look at those snakes. Sometimes friends would come over, you know, I'd say, hey, let's go check the snake boards. And we'd go out there and I'd lift that board up and those two snakes would lift their heads and their tongues would just come flickering out like as if they were saying, hey, what's going on? Turn out the lights. Put our roof back, will you? And I'd say, I'm just glad you're there, guys, or girls, or whatever you are. I'm just glad you're there. And I'd ease that board right back down. Now, I didn't want to disturb them. You know, I just wanted that snake to be able to digest its meal in peace. Well, then one day, our friend Thelma came to visit. Now, Thelma, she's this feisty city woman, but she loves to come out to our country place. 
And when she does, we take her all around. We show her the fish ponds. We show her the garden, the fruit trees, the chickens, you know. We call it our house and garden tour. She likes to see everything. We told her about the snake forts. Oh, yeah, she wanted to see the snakes, too. She wanted to see everything. So we were taking her around, and Yana was showing her the chicken yard. Well, Thelma loves to see the chickens and to see where they lay the eggs. In the chicken coop, we fixed up a nest box with leaves and straw to make a nice, soft nest where the hens can lay their eggs. Well, if you ever raise chickens, you probably know that one of the problems with chickens is getting the chickens to lay the eggs where you want them to. Chickens are kind of funny. When the hens are in a laying mode, they'll lay an egg almost every day. But their idea of where to lay them might not be the same as yours. I mean, sometimes they'll walk around in the pen and they'll just plop an egg down right there on the bare ground. Sometimes they'll go off in the corner and they'll lay a pile of eggs somewhere where you won't even see them. Or if you let them out during the day, they might go off and make a nest in the bushes somewhere and they'll hide them from you. And that's where the custom of hunting for Easter eggs on Easter came from. Because back in the old days, in the spring, right around Easter, is when the chickens would start laying their eggs. And so people would have to go out and hunt the nests to get their eggs. Well, one of the best ways to get the hens to lay their eggs in a nest where you want them to lay is you have to leave one egg in the nest. And that egg's called a nest egg. And chickens, when they see that one egg laying there in the nest, they go, bark, 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 oh, look here, girls, bark, this is where we lay our eggs. Oh, yeah, good idea, bark, we'll make a clutch right here. And then each hen will sit down on that egg and lay her egg next to the nest egg. And so leaving that one nest egg in the nest keeps them coming back there to lay. Now, if you want, you can use a regular egg for a nest egg. But the problem is, if you use a real egg, you've got to mark that egg really well. So that way, you don't pick up the nest egg by mistake. Because after that nest egg has been lying there in the nest for a month or two, you don't want to take that one back to the house and try to cook it for breakfast. Have you ever tried to cook a rotten egg? Whew, yuck! <laughs> It'll drive you out of the house. So we decided, all right, if we're going to use a nest egg, here we live in the 20th century, the space age, the age of plastics, we'll just try a plastic egg. So we put a grade A-sized plastic egg in the nest. And the chickens, they didn't mind at all. They didn't even seem to notice that it was plastic. They'd see that egg sitting there, and they'd say, Bark, oh, that's where we lay our eggs. Bark, look, someone's laid there already. Come on, girls. And they'd each take a turn and sit down on that plastic egg and lay their eggs all around that plastic one. And that worked great. This way, we always knew which egg was our nest egg, and it wasn't long before all those hens were laying their eggs in that nest box, just like we wanted them to. It seemed like everything was under control. Ha! Well, you know, while Yana was taking Thelma around, showing Thelma the chicken yard, she was telling her about our plastic nest egg. She was saying, you know, Thelma, the funniest thing happened. About three weeks ago, she said, that plastic nest egg just disappeared. Now, we couldn't imagine what had happened to our plastic egg. We cleaned the whole chicken coop out, and we could not find that egg. I mean, what in the world would take a plastic egg? we could not imagine. Well, it didn't take Thelma long at all. She says, I bet the snake ate it. I said, nah, nah, that's too weird. Even from my backyard, Thelma, nah. And she said, I bet it did. Take me out there to those snake boards. Let's look at those snakes. Well, we went out there to the snake board, and I lifted that board up, and there was that snake with the lump in it. And you know, that lump did look sort of round. She says, there's your egg right there. I said, nah, nah, it couldn't be. I said, Thelma, would a snake be stupid enough to swallow a plastic egg? She said, a chicken's stupid enough to sit on one. Why wouldn't a snake be stupid enough to eat one? 
<laughs> I thought, no, no, it couldn't be. I was still in complete denial. And Thelma said, there it is. I bet that's the egg. Yes, sir, that's that egg. You better do something about it, she said. That snake has got a hunk of plastic stuck in his belly, and that snake's going to die, and it's going to be your fault because you fed it a plastic egg. Now, you better do something. I thought, do something? <laughs> what am I supposed to do? Snake surgery? I mean, I mean, I'm sure I could cut that snake open, but how would I sew it back up? And think of all the pain it would cause that snake. I thought, nah, no, nah, I don't know what to do. She says, you better catch that snake. You better do something. I thought, all right, I better at least catch that snake and check it out. Now, a lot of times when you try to catch a wild snake, they get really scared because to them, you're like a giant attacking them. And they'll flail around and they'll panic and they'll try to get away. Sometimes they'll get so scared they whirl around and bite you. Now, getting bitten by a snake that's not poisonous is really no big deal. Because if a snake is not poisonous, it just has little tiny teeth. And if it does bite, it just makes a little scratch, like the kind of scratches you get picking blackberries or running through the bushes. So I slowly reached down and I picked the snake up. I was as gentle as I could be. And I think that snake could tell by the way I handled it that I was friendly. It didn't try to get away. It didn't struggle. It didn't try to bite me. It seemed like maybe it knew I was trying to help. Well, I felt that lump, and it felt just like a plastic egg. And I thought, oh, no. What am I going to do? All right, well, let's see. I decided I would take it up to the house. We might as well be scientific about this. We'll measure how long the snake is, and we'll measure how far the egg is down the snake. Then maybe we can call the science museum or figure something else to do. So we took it up to the house, and we measured it. The snake was six feet long, and that egg was 32 inches down that snake, almost halfway. And I thought, how am I going to get that egg out of there? I just couldn't see cutting that snake open. And then I got an idea. Maybe I could just squeeze behind that egg and push it right back up out of that snake. So I just started squeezing, gently but firmly. And that poor snake just started writhing about. Yana was trying to hold the snake, and I was squeezing gently and firmly as I could. And it seemed like I got that egg to move just a little bit. Yep, yep, maybe, maybe an inch. Then I squeezed a little more, and it moved another inch. Then I squeezed a little more, and it moved another inch. And I kept working that egg up that snake inch by inch by inch. By inch, Yana was holding that snake, and I was squeezing away there. Inch by inch by inch. And then I held the snake, and Yana squeezed. Inch by inch by inch. We were making progress now. And that snake kept writhing back and forth, trying to help us as best as it could. And we kept squeezing that egg. Inch by inch by inch inch and then we got to the last maybe 18 inches or so the last foot and a half and the snake's own peristalsis took over that's its own muscular contractions took over and it seemed like that snake was bringing the egg up by itself all on its own so we just held that snake as gently as we could and watched that snake slowly move that egg along inch by inch by inch and in the meantime, the snake's mouth was open, its tongue was hanging out. And you know how a snake has a forked tongue? 
Well, the two tips of its forked tongue were stuck together, and there was a stream of clear drool coming off the tip of that snake's tongue. And that snake was making a noise, and it sounded something like this. <laughs> now, that's true. I mean, snakes don't usually make noise, but you sure could hear this one. And we watched that egg slowly move along that snake's neck, inch by inch by inch. We watched the neck swell up. We watched the head swell up. We watched the mouth and the jaws get unhinged and all distended. That mouth was just gaping wide open, and you could see something white in the back of that snake's throat. It was coming up. And that snake went, bluh, and that egg plopped forth on the ground. I picked it up. Well, there was our plastic egg. I rinsed it off and looked it over. I thought, oh my goodness, that flimsy plastic egg looked just like it did when it was back in the hen house almost a month ago. It was absolutely unchanged. Three weeks in that snake's belly didn't affect that plastic egg one bit. Well, you know, snakes have very powerful digestive juices. And when a snake swallows a bird or a rat, it digests just about everything, the bones and the hair and the feathers and the toenails, all those parts of the animal. But as powerful as that snake's digestive juices were, it didn't even touch this thin plastic egg. And I thought, my goodness, you know how they're always talking about not throwing plastic out in the environment? Well, all of a sudden, it made sense to me what they're talking about. That's why they're always saying how plastic can be such a problem in nature. Nothing digests it. So anyway, I thought, that poor snake, it hadn't had any food or water for weeks. What can I do? So I took the snake, and I put it in a big, empty aquarium tank that I had, and I put some rocks and boards and a dish of water in there with the snake. Well, that snake crawled right up to that dish of water. Its tongue flickered out a couple of times, and then that snake just started to drink. Well, it drank, and it drank, and it drank. It drank almost that whole dish of water and then it just curled up in the corner of the tank. I guess it was just trying to rest. And that snake needed a little chance to rest and recover. I could imagine it had a sore throat. It certainly has a long enough throat to be sore. So, okay, I thought, I better keep it a little while, keep it overnight maybe, and make sure it's fully recovered before I let it go again. So I put a cover over the tank, and we left it alone till the next morning. Did you ever wake up with a black snake on your mind? Well, I can tell you, I sure did. The first thing I did when I came down the next morning was check on that snake. Well, it was coiled up, resting there in the corner of that tank, and it looked like it was in fine shape. Well, I figured I'd just let it go, but I was wishing that I could just feed it something. But I couldn't think of what I had that it would eat. We didn't have any fresh rats or mice handy. And then right there I hear, down at the chicken coop, it sounded like a hen might have just laid an egg. You know, a hen makes a lot of noises after she lays an egg, and the rooster, he crows a lot too. <laughs> I wondered, how would that snake relate to an egg now? <laughs> I went running down the chicken coop, and I got down there and I looked in that nest, and sure enough, there was an egg. I picked that egg up, and that egg was still warm. Now, you talk about a fresh egg. You don't get an egg any fresher than that. I took that egg back, and I put it right in there with that snake. That snake lifted up its head, and its tongue started flickering out all around that egg. And we watched that snake's mouth open up, and that lower jaw slide under that egg, 
and soon the snake's entire head was distended and stretched out around that egg. We watched that egg slowly move down that snake's neck, inch by inch by inch, just like we'd watched the day before, but going the right way this time. And this time, when it got into the snake about eight or nine inches, the egg just stopped, and the snake bent its body at a right angle, just made like a corner with its body, and sure enough, that egg stayed there for a minute, and all of a sudden, you could hear a sound. It sounded something like this. And we looked, and that lump that used to be the whole egg just collapsed. The snake had a place where it could break the egg right in its body. And then that egg slid right down into the snake's belly, and in another minute, you couldn't even tell that snake had eaten anything. And that snake looked up, and you know, it's hard to read the expression on a snake, but it seemed like that snake was saying, ah, now that's the way an egg's supposed to be. Well, I kept that snake around for a little while, and I fed it a few more eggs, and then I let it go. And for a number of years after that, that snake kept coming back, and every year we'd see that snake. It got so tame that it would actually take an egg out of my hand. And you know, we don't use a plastic egg as our nest egg in our chicken coop anymore. We leave a real egg out there. And you know, sometimes in the summer, our nest egg will disappear. But we just figure that eggs, well, eggs are not very expensive. But a good rack catcher is a precious thing indeed. And that's the true story of the snake and the egg. Did you ever wake up with a black snake in your yard? He might be moving slow, but Lord, he's working hard. Doug Elliott with a story about a snake and an egg. Well, an egg of sorts, right? I heard Doug Elliott tell that story in front of a bunch of kids in New Mexico one time. I got up on stage right after Doug Elliott, and there was a kid in the audience who wanted to talk about his pet snake, a snake that he had named One-Eyed Willie. We enjoyed the story told by that kid as much as we enjoyed stories told by each other. We're going to wrap up today with a story called Red-Breasted Sapsucker by another naturalist and storyteller, Pete Griffin. Happy to bring it to you here on The Appleseed. For years I told natural history stories on the radio in southeast Alaska. One of the byproducts of doing that series was that people kind of thought of me as an expert in wild things and their behavior. And they would call me with questions. I gotta tell you, I don't feel like an expert. Most of the time when questions came up, I had to go to some reference book to find the answer. But it kept me on my toes and it often led to me learning something that I never knew before. I got a call a while back from a homeowner who'd been experiencing a wake-up call at dawn by a drumming woodpecker that chose his metal rain gutter as a sounding board. Well, dawn comes mighty early in an Alaskan summer and wake-up calls at 3.30 a.m can get a little wearisome. What the heck is this bird doing? he asked. Well, from his description, I tentatively identified the early morning reveler as a red-breasted sapsucker, and I explained what I knew of sapsuckers. They're members of the woodpecker family, which is well known for drilling holes in dead or dying trees, 
both to feed on insects and to excavate holes for nesting. But why would woodpeckers try to drill holes in metal gutters, siding, or stovepipes? Well, members of the woodpecker family, including the sapsuckers, aren't known for their singing abilities. They drum instead. A sharp, steady drum roll as opposed to the more deliberate and measured chipping of dead wood to expose insects. Drumming is a means of establishing territories and attracting mates, like other birds do by singing. In the wild, these birds select trees for drumming around the edges of their territories. A nicely dried, dead tree provides a good resonant sound that carries well. And the further the sound carries, the larger the territory that can be proclaimed by the bird and the greater the chance of attracting a mate from a distance. So can you imagine the joy of one of these birds that's able to include a good metal rain gutter within its territory? What a great sound! This whole neighborhood is mine, it seems to say. Like other members of the woodpecker family, the red-breasted sapsucker's bill is cushioned by cartilage to provide some protection so the bird's tiny little brain doesn't rattle around while drumming or drilling holes. Now I looked up red-breasted sapsuckers in my reference books. You see, I occasionally get this uneasy feeling that what I remember learning years ago is either no longer true or has somehow been replaced by more current knowledge without my knowing. Sapsuckers are responsible for those bands of small quarter-inch holes around the trunks of trees, usually deciduous trees like mountain ash or cottonwood and alder. Now I had thought that, despite the name sapsucker, that the birds created the holes to attract ants and flies to the oozing sap, and then they tended these holes to collect the insects rather than feed on the sap. Well, I was partially right. They do pick off insects, but they lap up the sap too. What I didn't know was that other birds take advantage of these sap wells. Hummingbirds and warblers also sponge off the work of the sapsucker, making rounds of these sap wells to slurp up sap and eat the insects. I also found out that male and female sapsuckers perform drumming duets during the mating season. That's interesting. Unless, of course, you happen to be sleeping below the rain gutter chosen for this pre-dawn ritual. A couple of days after that original phone call complaining about the sapsucker drumming, I got an update on this homeowner's situation. Visiting guests happened to have in their possession a rubber snake. They put it on the roof near the drumming site, and amazingly enough, the sapsuckers avoided it. Snakes are known to prey on birds' eggs and nestlings, so it's reasonable that a bird would avoid them, much the same way that owl decoys frighten away birds. Now this all raised a couple of questions with me. The first was, what kind of guests would pack a rubber snake in their travels? But I was also thinking that there are no snakes in Alaska, so these birds had never seen a snake in Juneau. So my second question was, does that mean there's some kind of genetic warning hardwired into their brains that snakes are dangerous? Well, it turns out that red-breasted sapsuckers winter as far south as Baja, California, where they might have conceivably encountered snakes. So maybe their fear of snakes was a learned behavior rather than genetic. It'd be an interesting experiment to see if a rubber snake would frighten off local non-migratory birds. 
Now, it seems like woodpeckers drumming on siding is a problem not confined to Alaska, and there's a whole host of homemade and professional remedies available online, including putting up owl decoys to using mirrors to putting up protective netting around popular drumming sites on houses. But I'd never heard anyone using a rubber snake to discourage woodpeckers before. You learn something new every day. As a famous hostess and decorator used to say, that's a good thing. <laughs> Pete Griffin with a story called Red-Breasted Sapsucker. It's been a fun hour with, of course, Pete Griffin and with Doug Elliott and with Andy Offit Irwin, who favored us with that performance of Crickets in the Kudzu, a little zany adventure with Andy Offit Irwin. Fun to talk to our friend Rod Gustafson, and it's always a pleasure for me to bring you an entry in the Radio Family Journal. Join us next time for all kinds of great stories and great story tellers. Our producer is Jeff Simpson. I'm Sam Payne, and I can't wait to be with you again on The Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time.